Hello and welcome to Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Jack Conte. Hi Jack. Hello Mike, how's it going? Very well sir, how are you? I'm doing just great. Now Jack, I will start off this uh, episode as I start off every episode of Command Space. What do you like to be known for? Oh wow, what a, what a great question. <laughs> I've never gotten that question anymore. Uh, or ever. Um, what do I like to be known for? Um, I like to be known for um, being creative. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Be- being creative in lots of different ways. I, I would say that's that's the, the best thing I could I could hope to be uh, known for. I hope that we're going to take a look at these types of things. So I think I can kind of understand what, where you're coming from. So not just creative in the work that you do, but in the way that you do the work that you do, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, exactly. And and all different types of work. I mean, you know, I, I really enjoy filmmaking and uh, and making music as well. And also, you know, Patreon. So, so doing more side, sort of, uh, you know, uh, company building and and uh, and product and that kind of stuff. So you know, a, a combination of all of that, I think. So people may know you from uh, from your music, uh, like your work in Pomplamus and Patreon, as we as you mentioned. So we're going to talk about those um, a little bit later on. Uh, but first, I want to understand a little bit about your background. What were you doing before you ever even thought about Pomplamus? Where were you in in the world? What were you doing with your life? Um, I was working as a freelance composer for Google. I was uh, helping That's their. That's a strange mix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, um, they uh, have a video production team, an in-house video production department, oh, and I was right. working for that department, just scoring, you know, corporate videos and you know making background music, and also directing, you know, short like advertisement videos for them for internal use. It's funny how, in a company of that size, the types of jobs that can exist. Uh, it is. Well, there's, I mean, it's a, it's a city, right? So anything that you would need in a city, you're going to need at Google. And um, we all need composers. That's true. There are many composers in a city. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been uh, playing music? I started playing piano when I was six. Um, so that means about four years now. <laughs> you're very advanced. <laughs> Google hired you extremely young. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I started taking classical piano lessons, um, and then my dad taught me the blues. That's when I was six. Uh, then I switched to jazz when I was like twelve, thirteen. Started learning about compositional theory and jazz theory, and um, that's when I started writing music. Well, I was writing music before then, but that's when I started, you know, writing, you know, with I guess theoretical. And, and actually, what I knew what I was doing as opposed to just going by ear. Not that that's not knowing what you're doing, but... Um, and then, let's see. Uh, in college, I studied music, composition, and, uh, and like, algorithmic composition as well. Music, science, and technology was my uh, focus. Um, and then, after I graduated, I was a composer, and then I started, you know, my own band. So, it's sort of my whole life I've been doing music. How many instruments can you play? I can play one instrument well, and everything else I play well enough to record and chop up with a computer and make it sound like I can play it. <laughs> so does that remain to be piano and keyboard is your main instrument? Yeah, pretty much anything that um, looks or smells like a keyboard. So glockenspiel, piano, 
um, organ, you know, anything like that, vibes, marimba, whatever it is, as long as it's laid out like a piano, that's okay. Then guitar, I'm, I'm a hacker at guitar, and drums leave a lot to be desired if I'm playing live. So, um, you know, I can kind of hack on all those things, and I, and I have... I have decent time and you know and and generally good musical sensibilities so I can kind of make it look like I can play things even though I'm really not very good at them. <laughs> what about guitar then? If it looks like a, a, a oh, keyboard. Absolutely, I can wail on the guitar. <laughs> so, Pomplamoose. Pomplamoose uh is a a band that you've been involved with for how long? Uh 2008 is when we got started, so 6 years now. And this is along with your partner, Natalie. How did you meet? We met at a coffee shop um, on our college campus, and she was opening for a band that I was in. And I walked in the room, and it was there was like a fog machine or whatever, and she was sitting on stage with this like giant, long electric bass. And she was sitting on this really tall stool, and she was wearing this really weird jacket, and she had a European haircut because she was from Europe. And... She just looked really different and beautiful, and it was kind of cinematic and crazy. And yeah, I couldn't like take my eyes off her. It was kind of weird. It was one of those like movie moments. Uh, it, it really was actually. It really was a, a moment that I remember and, and probably will remember for the rest of my life. I think the smoke machine helps in that scenario. You no, know, if you got a little bit of haze going, it, it helps everything. <laughs> it just adds to the whole mystique. Really, it's like a real real life Instagram. So, um, how long had you known Natalie before starting Pomplamoose? Let's see. Two years? I guess two years. We started, uh, the first thing we did together was make music, and that just failed miserably. I was trying to produce one of her albums, and it just was awful. And so, we, uh, we just stopped, and we actually broke up. And then a couple years later, we got back together and we really played it safe. We didn't make music together for years out of fear that it would wreck our relationship. And then we finally felt like we were at a place that was stable enough to start making music together. And lo and behold. Yeah, I can imagine like the creative process can be a stress like that. Yeah, it's funny. Now our creative process is like super easy. I mean, Natalie's like the easiest person ever to collaborate with for me. I've never found a partner that I feel more creative and natural working with um but at the beginning before we kind of knew what we were doing and when i was more of a jerk um it was harder to collaborate <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's how that sort of stuff works anyway <laughs> yeah so how did so what what how did the band come into existence so you decided you wanted to start making music to, well, to creating together was it was it music together you wanted to make and then Pomplamoose came as the idea or how did how did you go from right we're going to start working on something together to Pomplamoose being created well, well where, does, was, where does the name come from as well yeah so I, I was working a lot on YouTube you know putting up YouTube videos and trying to convince Natalie to get on YouTube because I was saying look that's that's the best thing that's where that's where it's all happening this was like 2008 and uh so not everybody really knew about YouTube back then either. Um, but uh, we decided to, in an effort to kind of get her into it, um, we, I just, okay, let's produce one of your songs. I'll, I'll produce one of your songs. You, it's you know, a song that you wrote, and you're going to sing, and I'm just going to do the, the instrumentation, the backing beats, and all that kind of stuff. And we did it, and it was 
so different than her music and it was so different than my music that we just decided, okay, this doesn't really feel like you and it doesn't really feel like me. This is more something new. This is, this is like a, I guess it's a band. <laughs> so we posted the first video. We didn't even have a band name yet. We just said, hey, this is me and Natalie collaborating. And we posted on my YouTube channel and it got more hits than any of my videos ever had. And it was, my fans liked it more than they liked my music. <laughs> and, uh, and so we thought, hmm, maybe there's, maybe we should do another one. So um, Natalie's friend had just gotten back from Europe and thought Pomplamoose was a funny word. So we said, okay, let's just call ourselves Pomplamoose and let's post another one. So we did. And then we were called Pomplamoose. And then that was it. When did covers become a thing? Um, 2009, uh, we went and produced a record of this girl named Julia Nunes. She was also YouTube, and she was like so massive and, and uh, way bigger than we were, and she invited us to come produce her record, and we were super jazzed. And we were trying to figure out or you know, like why, how she got so big on YouTube. And I noticed that um, at the time, if you were to search The Beatles on YouTube, her video popped up first. Wow. Okay. And I, I realized, oh man, YouTube's a search engine and this is just SEO and let's cover Beyonce single ladies and call our video Beyonce single ladies and see if SEO can work for us. And it did. So was that your, would that, is that song, the single ladies video, is that what you pinpoint as the success, the breaking point for Pumplemoose? Yeah. I mean, that was the first time we ever got like hundreds of thousands of views in one day. Um, we posted that video. We got 500,000 views overnight. Our fan base quintupled um, in a couple of months. We had a show booked at a little cafe called Brainwash Cafe. <laughs> and uh, it was it's a laundromat. It's a laundromat slash cafe. We booked it about two weeks, probably two or three weeks before we uploaded the video. And then we uploaded the video. And then two weeks later, we had the show. And when we showed up to the venue, I mean, I say the venue. It's It's literally like a tiny cafe with laundry machines. And when we showed up, there were 200 people inside, and there were another 200 people outside crowding into the street Whoa. And, like, and on the sidewalk, and, like, cars had to, like, drive around. Like, it was crazy. There were yeah, that's not normal. People. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's only 400 people. It's not like a stadium or whatever, but it really, like, we we've re- we thought, okay, you know, this is this is incredible. Like, this is, these are, there are real people watching these videos. This is a real community. This, you know, we have fans. It was the first time we felt like we had a fan base. So what did the single ladies video teach you? Um, well, it taught me a couple things. One, it taught me that YouTube is an incredibly powerful, smart platform with a lot of potential. And um, it taught me that um, SEO is something that musicians can use um, and it taught me that um, being a musician is being an entrepreneur in in the age of free publishing and and uh, free distribution. That it's really one and the same. Um, if you're if you devote your life to it, you know, um, you can make it a living. It's it's funny. Uh, it didn't used to be that way. You would either become Lady Gaga and get rich and famous or you were what's called what people say, you know, starving artist. But those are the two sort of rubrics for being a musician, being an artist. And this taught me 
that, okay, there's this third class emerging. There's this middle class musician who gets to do what they love every day and make art and make music and connect with people and have fans. And they're the mom and pop corner store version of Lady Gaga. They're a viable, successful, money-making media business, um, even though they're not household names. And that's just something that's unbelievable and so special about the time that we live in. That, that was not possible 10 years ago. So did the numbers still mean the same? Like those hundreds of thousands of views that you got in the first few days, that seems to be very standard for your videos now. How do, how does it feel when you see half a million views now to how it felt then? Um, wow, you are asking just amazing <laughs> questions. <laughs> Thank you. This is amazing. That's something I talk about a lot. I call, I call it the inflation of the view as a currency. Um, if you think about a view as a currency, you know, what is one view worth? I think you're, you're just touching on a very interesting point, which is that one view used to be worth a lot more than it's worth today. Um, and I think the best way to measure that is to look at cat videos. Um, in 2008, if you were to see a cat video online with, you know, 200,000 hits, oh my god, wow, 200,000 people watch this cat video? I'm definitely going to watch that cat video, and it's like probably going to be the funniest thing you've ever seen in your life, right? This is 2008. Fast forward to 2014, you kind of can't get through a day on the internet without seeing a cat video with over a million views, and some of them are pretty funny, but really the funniest ones have like 20 or 40 or 50 million views. So if you see a cat video now on YouTube, you're browsing through YouTube and you see, you know, cats in the recommendations bar and each one has 250,000 views, you're actually probably not going to click on that one anymore because it's probably not that good. Um, yeah. and, and, and so that, that just means that the view as, as a currency, one view just means less mentally for people now. Um, you know, the, the view as a measure of quality um, has decreased significantly. But every every time you put a video, so maybe every week or whatever, you, you're filling stadium upon stadium of people. <laughs> Have you watched my talks? Because... Well, I was at one of them. <laughs> okay. At the XOXO yeah. one. But oh, oh, okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's exactly that's exactly what I say is like, you know, we are immune now to the concept of a hundred thousand views, right? Yeah. We're we're like it doesn't mean anything to us because we think of it as a view instead of as a person, you know. And and if you were to actually think about what a hundred thousand people, I mean, this is what you're touching on. If you think about what is a hundred thousand people, yeah, it's like it's a football stadium, you yeah. know. Think about the sound, the roaring you know, explosions of a crowd screaming that that's what a hundred thousand people sounds like. Like, Oh my gosh, that when some, when a video has a hundred thousand hits, that's the number of people. That's so much energy and time. So it's so much, uh, it's, it's, it's so much, well, it can be community. I think if, if people treat it as such, if you treat it as eyeballs, then it's just eyeballs. But if you, if you treat if you treat that as people, um, then I think you start to form a community around your work and that, you know, in fans. Because, like, I've definitely I've felt the same. Like, I, I've been in arenas uh, 
watching some of my favorite artists and I'm like, hang on a minute, the capacity of this arena is the same amount of people that listened to that interview I did two weeks ago. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> and it's this, it's this strange feeling where you realize it's this many people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that's what, okay, so here's the other right, the reason we're immune to that and why we don't think of it like that. Um, first of all, there's so much disassociation from the community that happens online. I think a lot of what you, you know, what really great UX and UI people are doing right now is trying to get you to feel that. But the thing is, as long as the web is ad-based, we're not going to feel it. Because ad-based removes the importance of care from eyeballs. So when when the web is ad-based, what matters is clicks and page views, right? That's why that's why, you know, companies with no revenue, but but you know, millions and millions of page views get like hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in terms of their valuation. And it, it's because you can translate, there's, there's just a formula, you can translate pay view, you know, page views to ad revenue. But in the end, that's a very indirect method of monetization. You know, the advertiser away from the thing that you actually want to be focusing on. Like, that's the job of an advertiser. Take your focus away from what you meant to watch or read or listen to, right? That's what, that's the purpose of an ad. That's the, actually, that's like the foundation of what an ad. And a great ad is really good at moving your focus from what you meant to be focused on. So as long as that's the web, um, then I think what's going to matter is large numbers, you know, multiplying your page views, getting as many people to watch as possible instead of getting people to really engage and enjoy your work, instead of building a community around your work, instead of encouraging true human and Right? If, which is why I think we're seeing like rise of, of like just crummy headlines and clickbait and like all those things are byproducts of an ad-based web. Um, and it's just a crummy experience for everyone turning the, the beautiful, most incredible tool that, ma- that man maybe has created. Or the day of the internet is like, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's such an important time in history and we're turning it into a freaking billboard and it just makes me sad and there are better ways to do it. I'm sure we're going to talk about those better ways shortly. Yes. I do have a... This actually does kind of lead into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the struggles of an independent creator. So to an outsider, having the kind of viewer numbers that you guys have would, in theory, it would seem on on, on the face of it, put you in a position where YouTube advertisements would would seem to be a significant moneymaker for you um, and you would be sitting on piles of cash. Is this the case? Yeah. Um, I get about $300 million from my views every month. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have a boat and a yacht and a couple planes. Um, no, seriously, my, my, my check from ad revenue last month, the actual money, and I don't, you can talk about CPMs, you can talk about, you know, whatever you want to talk, I don't care. My check that came to me from a million views on YouTube was $249. That's what I got paid last month for serving YouTube 2 million watch minutes on a silver platter. That's what, that's what YouTube pays me. So, um, not to talk shit about YouTube or anything. I love YouTube and I, 
I'm so thankful for them. I just think, it, you know, Jason Calcana said it the best way. He said, um, YouTube is a great place to build an audience. It's a terrible place to build a business. And uh, I think that's true. So this is where people start to look outside. Do, do you figure that do, these are the the struggles that independent content creators face? Like that it's if you attach onto a larger network like this or you're relying on a, a company like YouTube to provide you with your your money, that that's where things start to break down. Yeah, so there's an inherent problem. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. You know, um, companies are not necessarily aligned with their users in terms of goals. Um, and I think that couldn't be more clear on, you know, than, than in YouTube's case. Um, and so what you do as a user when you, because that's, you know, that's what, that's what we are to tech companies. We are users. Um, we, we, when we put our trust in their platform, um, we set ourselves up to be under their control and we are at, we are, our, our livelihoods um, are made and destroyed at the whim of an executive who may or may not be in touch with our community. And um, unless we have ultimate faith in the upper management structure of these organizations, um, I think you know, what, what ends up happening is what's happened to a lot of YouTube creators where, you know, their viewership literally got cut in half, um, with a new, you know, update to, to the logic in the recommendation, uh, engine, you know, um, that's just something that happened, you know, overnight. It was like your views dropped in half. It happened to so many hundreds of thousands of creators on YouTube, big ones and small ones. Um, and then there's, you know, updates to the content ID system um, where, you know, the content ID system just robotically scans and uh, flags content online. And not only do your views go down, but your ad revenue gets cut in half overnight, illegitimately too. I mean, yeah. you know, c cases where, where a creator is, you know, 100% inside the legal realm of what they are allowed to do and um and their revenue gets cut in half. And I don't I don't know I don't feel respected when that happens. I don't feel respected as a user or a creator when those kinds of things happen to me. And I understand that YouTube is doing what's in their best interest and and they have to be. I mean, it's not that I blame them. I just I just think that um that you just have to be careful who you trust. Um yeah, and, and, and I think it's good. I don't think any creator should... Okay, let me put it this way. Investors, investors put money in... You know, they have an investment portfolio. And they, you know, they like to talk about um, the diversifying of their portfolio. They have all different kinds of investments in all different areas. So that if one of those areas tanks, their, their portfolio remains intact. Right? They can still make money, even if something goes to zilch. And I think creators need to do the same thing. Um, I think creators need to be careful where they invest their time and their resources in their audience building. Um, picking any one platform is improperly diversifying your portfolio. And um, I, if I had to make one um, suggestion to creators, it would be think about where your audience exists and diversify that as much as possible so that if one of those companies 
decides to screw you, uh, you still are in touch with your fans. Um, yeah. I just, sorry, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but. No, it's, that was useful. Like, that's valuable okay. information. Okay. Because it makes sense, right? Because if you're 100% in the, you're putting all your eggs in the YouTube basket, something happens to YouTube and you're kind of screwed. Like, I, I was seeing, like, the, the, there was, like, a potential rumors of an acquisition of SoundCloud by Twitter. Right. But what if you put all your music on SoundCloud? Well, you could lose it in, like, two weeks' time if that happened. And it's a, it's a, it's a risk to take. Yeah. It's, um, it's just scary. It's, it's scary. And, and I think, um, you know, I think, I think we should be responsible about how we grow our audiences. Um, you know, the, in the winner takes all kind of mentality of Silicon Valley, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to diversify your portfolio, but <laughs> as a creator, but I, I think we should, I think we just have to do whatever we can to bring traffic onto our own website, um, bring traffic, you know, through, uh, you know, various social platforms, wh- wherever you can. Um, it's just, it's just imperative. Now, I want to take a very quick break to thank our sponsor for this show. Um, and then uh, we're going to, uh, then I want to talk to you about what you are personally doing to make that idea and those ideas a reality for other creators. Um, so let's take a moment to thank Squarespace. They are the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, make sure that you use the offer code SPOTLIGHT at checkout because that's going to get you 10% off. With Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Squarespace gives you all of the tools that you need um, to make an absolutely fantastic, beautiful website. It's really simple and really easy. They have drag and drop content to make you build your pages in just a breeze. You can just drag and drop in the types of things that you want to make. So you want to have a blog where you can easily set up a blog page and you can drag in an image blog or you can drag in uh, a Twitter widget so people can see your tweets that sort of stuff you can just move this around the pages very easily if you have any issues at all uh, squarespace have 24 7 customer support through live chat and email and they have teams located in new york city and dublin to get this all taken care of for you very very simply their plans start at just eight dollars a month and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year all squarespace plans and all Squarespace sites feature responsive web design. So they're beautiful, beautiful templates that I mentioned. They all look fantastic on any device, whether it's a desktop, a laptop, phone, or a tablet, because they make sure they feature responsive web design right out of the box. And maybe you want to sell something. Maybe you have some merchandise you want to sell. Maybe you have a book that you want to sell. Well, with Squarespace, you can easily integrate Squarespace Commerce, which is their online store functionality. Every single Squarespace website comes with the ability to do this, and you can uh, sell physical and digital goods, and they have all of the tools and services built right in that you will need to take advantage of this. I've been using Squarespace for many years for my own websites. Um, I used to host podcasts on on Squarespace, and I knew a bunch of people that still do. They are a really great platform. It's one that I believe in and really strongly recommend. You can start a free trial right now. You don't need any credit card to do this, and you can start building your own website today. And when you decide to sign up, make sure you use the offer code SPOTLIGHT, that's S-P-O-T-L-I-G-H-T. At checkout, it's going to get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support for Command Space. So thanks so much to Squarespace for supporting this show and 5x5. That's Squarespace, where a better web starts with your website. So... 
I'm going to assume, Jack, that the reasons that you wanted to start Patreon was to change the YouTube model as the way that you and people that you work with and know made their livings. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, it was a very selfish thing. You know, it's, uh, this is something that I want to exist for me and it doesn't exist. So I'm going to build it, (laughs) um, or not, I'm going to build it, but I'm going to, you know, uh, find someone to help me, you know? And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just, it was out of necessity. You know, it's something that I knew my fans would want to do. Um, and it just wasn't a technical reality. And I, I just wanted to make it a technical reality. So tell me about Patreon. What is Patreon? Patreon is um, ongoing crowdfunding for recreators uh, in the form of recurring donations. So um, basically I say, hey, I tell my fans, hey guys, I'm putting up uh, videos, you know, twice a month or three times a month. And uh, I'm doing it for free. I'm putting them up. You know, I spend hundreds of hours on these videos. It's my living. I want to do it forever will you consider contributing a dollar every time I re-release a video? Um, I'm not saying, hey, you have to pay me if you want to see my work. It's not a paywall. It's, hey, I'm making this stuff and I'm putting it up anyway. And if you'd like to pay me, that would help me make more. That's the ethos of Patreon. So it's a, it's a page that looks a lot like a typical crowdfunding page, like a Kickstarter page, um, except when a fan makes a pledge, they pledge uh, a recurring pledge per video. So a fan will pledge, you know, $2 per video or $10 per video, whatever it is that they, that they feel comfortable with. And then they, you know, there are various rewards for different tiers of support. So, you know, at $10 a month, you get the, uh, sorry, at $10 per video, you get the, the webcast, you know, with, with the creator. Um, and then, you know, at, at $2 a video, um, you get, uh, you know, extra photos and some behind the scenes video and stuff like that. So um, that, that's what Patreon is. It's ongoing support with flexible triggering. In other words, it can be per video, per webcomic, per blog post, per Angels baseball game win, per month, per whatever you want it to be. Did Patreon begin as a platform that was just for you, or was it always something you wanted to build for everyone? Um, the very first uh, occurrence of Patreon in my notebook... <laughs> Um, which is just a, a book that I have. It's full of ideas. Um, is it was basically set up for my website for just jackconti.com, and it's the second I drew it, literally like pen touched to paper, and I was like, "Oh, this is not for me. This is for everybody. Um, this like everyone that I know, like all my friends on YouTube, and and all my musician friends, and um, all my blogger friends, and all my video maker. Like they would all want this." to be their website. So this, this can't be for just me. So, um, I guess, yeah, originally it's sort of the inception of the idea was just something that I needed. And then very quickly after that, I realized this was something that a lot of people would find useful. What differentiates Patreon from services like Kickstarter and Indiegogo? Yeah. Um, cause I'm sure you get compared to these quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, the, the, main, the main difference, again, is that it's a recurring pledge, right? Kickstarter and Indiegogo um, are transactional. You pledge once, and then you're done. Um, whereas Patreon um, is an ongoing relationship between the patron and the creator. It's, uh, there's, you know, we have, like, we have a, 
it looks like a Facebook news feed. It's an activity feed where creators can post, um, you know, behind the scenes videos, comments. They can filter to certain tiers of patronage. Patrons can post fan art and questions for the creators, and creators are answering them. If you look at some of the really engaged creators on Patreon, you'll just see like just incredible engagement and just these really strong communities of people who really care about a creator's work. I mean, you know, it's full of people who really care. That's, uh, I think that's what makes it unique from something like Facebook or Twitter. You know, it's only the people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is and back up their relationship with a dollar, you know? So it's, it's a self-selecting crowd of super fans. Um, and, and then, you know, again, the differentiator between Indiegogo and Kickstarter is that it's a recurring pledge. It's, you know, per piece of content or per month. Since, uh, how long has it been since you launched Patreon? 12 months. What have been the, the key successes or milestones that Patreon has achieved during this time? Um, let's see. I would say getting to 20,000 creators on the platform just recently was a huge thing for us. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, getting to a million dollars processed for creators, that was a big milestone. Wow. Um, getting, uh, getting to $100,000 a month to creators was big. We, we recently just hit $500,000 a month to creators. Um, and let's see. Oh, sending creators. There's a couple creators that we're sending checks to. It's like, you know, 15K a month. Um, that feels enormous to me. Yeah. That feels really great. You know, there we have we have people who are professional small business creators making six figure salaries using Patreon, and that's just like the greatest thing in the world to me. It's just proof that like we're entering a new phase of of human relationships and 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 the explosion of artistry as like a viable job. You know, you can you your job can be an artist now. Um, and just as like, you know, a kid can be encouraged to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer to make, you know, a really good salary, um, you know, you can, you can do it as an artist too. You could, you, you actually can now make a really good salary being a professional artist. How much of your time is devoted to Patreon now? Um, it's, it's different every week, um, but I would say it alternates between most days. It's it's four days a week, um, and then I go well four days a week at the office. <laughs> you know, whatever. Sometimes I start at six thirty. Sometimes I start at nine, um, and then it usually goes till ten p.m. You know, before I kind of take a break, um, and then on you know Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I go back to my house where I have my studio. I, I live at the office during the week at the Patreon office. And then on, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I go back to my studio and I work on music all weekend with Natalie, music and videos. Although during that time, I'm also, I mean, it's impossible to be away from Patreon. So I'm, I'm always, you know, doing emails and taking phone calls and talking with investors and other startups and creators. And so uh, I would say, um, most of my waking hours are devoted to Patreon. I think that's probably fair to say. And and then, you know, music is probably, well, I actually, how do I, how do I even say that? Cause I, I am maintaining my output as a creative person. I mean, I'm 
posting, I'm not taking a salary as CEO, I'm making my living, you know, using the product itself. So I have to devote time to putting up music and, and making videos. Um, and I'm continuing to do that with Natalie. So that's, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, and then occasionally Thursdays too. That salary thing really interests me. Why did you make that decision? Um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, there are some selfish reasons and then there are some, uh, um, non-selfish reasons. Um, so let's start with the selfish ones. Uh, I love music and it makes me tick and I, I could never give up making music and, and making video. It's just, it's a part of my soul and, uh, I can't ever imagine. Well, I, it would be impossible. I, to, to not make music, I would make it in some way or another. So, um, that's the selfish reason. The the non not so selfish reason is I think it's really good for Patreon for a couple reasons. When I say I'm not taking a salary, it's um, you know when I talk to other creators, they know that I'm coming at this from a creator's perspective, you know, and that I know what creators need and um, and I can build product or not I, I don't actually build the product but I can help inform the direction of the product um, I'm not technical at all I have a genius co-founder who built patreon you know coded patreon from the ground up and he's just an amazing product genius he just understands users and 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 uh, user interaction and um, he's uh, well, anyway, I can help inform the direction of those things as a creator myself. And I think when I tell people that I'm not taking a salary, um, it mentally kind of separates Patreon from a lot of other startups. You know, I'm not, we're not trying to, um, well, we have one very simple mission to send as much money to pos as possible to creators. That's our goal. We want to send as much money as possible to creators. And, uh, you know, people know that I'm aligned with them if I'm not taking a salary because then my interest isn't in Patreon. It's in making Patreon useful for creators. And so, I, you know, early in this conversation, I was saying how lots of times tech companies, management, upper management and tech companies aren't necessarily aligned with their users' needs. And so I'm just trying to force myself into a position where I am 100% aligned with our users. And obviously that's never going to be the case because I have equity in Patreon. And so, um, you know, the success of Patreon, uh, you know, th th there are incentives beyond just uh, using the product and making money from the product that are just built into the situation. And yet, um, I feel like I can do my best to align myself with our users as much as possible. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, because this kind of leads into the next thing, and I think it might help you round round the answer even more. Could Patreon exist if it was run by somebody you didn't create? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I tell that to our investors, um, and uh, and they understand that the, the good ones do. Um, the the uh, the not so good ones I don't think understand that, <laughs> but um, but yeah you know it's such a specific thing like the difference between Patreon and Kickstarter for so many people is like a subtle thing they don't understand it um, and yet 
if there wasn't just tremendous need for Patreon, we wouldn't have gotten 20,000 creators using the platform in 12 months. Um, you know, there, there is, there's a giant hole here and it's, there's a huge need for this. People need what we're making. And, um, and, and so, you know, I think it takes a creator to really understand that need. Um, it takes someone who's a part of the creative middle class to know what is needed for the creative middle class because it's not a role that has been around for a very long time. It's an emerging role in society that's never existed before. And so it's not like you can just pull up a web page on the creative middle class and look at what they need and do market research because the market is being created as we move forward here. It's getting bigger and bigger and it's coming to be right now. Yeah. You know, if you want to make a product for doctors, you just go ahead and interview a bunch of doctors. <laughs> you know, um, if you want to make a product for the creative middle class, it's very difficult. Most people don't even know there is a creative middle class. The media still is entirely blind to it. They still talk about YouTube stars, right? How many times have we heard YouTube star? Like, I'm so sick of that phrase, YouTube stars. There's, there's hundreds of thousands of us. We're not stars. We walk down the street and no one recognizes us. You know, we, we are invisible to the world. And yet we have just so much community around us people who love our work and they care about what we're making and and we feel connected to them and they feel connected to us and it's not it's not 10 people it's football stadiums of people like you mentioned before you know that's most people don't even know that exists i mean the trickiest part about about explaining patreon to the normal person is explaining our users <laughs> you know it's like i have to pull up a youtube window and and show them just page after page after page just endless pages of people who are getting hundreds of thousands of hits you know per video that they release and um or per podcast or you know web call whatever it is and um a lot of people don't even understand that so i want to know what are your long-term goals for patreon yeah um Again, it comes down to the mission. Uh, we we want to send money to creators. I want to empower and uh, and enable the the creative middle class, and that that's the that's the market, and that's the that's the zone that we're focused on. I want to help um, my friends who are on the verge of becoming professional media creators, and they just need a little push. They need an extra three or four grand a month, you know, and um, that's 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 what we want to do in terms of the future. Um, you know, it's, it's always going to come back to that. Uh, but I think we can expect a lot of really cool tools and products, things that bring more money to creators, um, ways of engaging with fans that will help, you know, um, convert fan to patron, you know, um, insights for creators that help them reduce churn and, um, manage their media businesses moving forward. You know, I, I want Patreon to be a professional tool for for professional, devoted artists who devote their life to work. You know, to 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 making art, and I want that to be possible, and um, not only possible, but like successful and viable, and uh, and um, you know, a serious outcome for them. So that's that's the future of Patreon. Jack, it has been uh, not only a pleasure to talk to you, but actually for me, uh, really, really inspiring. So thank you. 
You're you're so welcome. Thanks for the awesome questions. These were really great questions. I'm pleased that you enjoyed them. Why don't you uh, tell people on the internet where they can find out, find you and keep up with you and everything that you're doing and Patreon's doing? Great. Yeah, if you just uh, search Pomplamoose on Google, you'll see uh, all of our videos and um, that's Pomplamoose. And then if you search Patreon or just go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, um, that's where you can start browsing creators and, and looking at what we're doing and start supporting people and, and maybe just get support yourselves for, for putting beautiful things on the web. So, and if you want to find the show notes for today's episode of Command Space, you'll want to go and go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 99. Thank you so much to Jack for joining me this week, and thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week for another episode of Command Space. If you want to find me online, I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E on Twitter. It's a great place to keep up with what I'm doing. And uh, until next week for the big episode 100. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.